We appreciate that uh, people, anyone, would choose to give up their time, uh, our most precious resource, on a Sunday morning to uh, join us, to worship with us, to chase truth with us. And so as you do that, uh, we want to get to know you. One of the ways we do that is there is a little brown card about that big, right on that same information table, out those doors and to your right, you'll find that card. It asks you for your name and your email. And in exchange, we want to hand you a Covenant Coffee mug and say, we're so glad you're here. We want to pray for you by name. We want to know how we can serve you. And if uh, God should call you uh, to be a part of this family, uh, we want to do this life with you um, for as long as you're willing. And so that's our invitation to you. Thank you for being our guest. We are glad you are here. And today, today you are so excited because we are starting a brand new series and it is called Together. Look at that. Just on cue. It's a series about marriage, singleness, parenting, and sex. And it will go through those things, not in a linear fashion and not one on each topic, but we're going to touch on all those uh, things. This is going to be, uh, I think, a really interesting time, a really interesting month. Um, Let me walk you through what to expect, okay? So today we're going to talk about the fundamentals of marriage. This is not um, marriage 101. This is what does God see when he sees marriage? What does the Bible say about what it means to be married and how do we react within that? At its core, what, what is the fundamental of marriage, and then how do we fundamentally live in that? On the 12th, uh, next Sunday, Tim Butler will come, and he will speak on conflict. Uh, he has been a practitioner who has counseled countless couples through conflict in a clinical setting. And so what Tim is gracious enough to do is to pull out all of the wisdom that he's gleaned from a, a various, you know, widespread demographic place and say, this is common to marriage. This is what conflict looked like, and I'm going to help you uh, address it, work through it, and do it in a way that is God-honoring and and healthy. So I'm excited about next week. On the 19th, Craig Dixon, one of our elders, will be up here, and he is talking about parenting. Some of you go, well, I'm way past that stage, and what Craig would say is none of us are ever past that stage. Um, This is not just for parents of uh, diapers to uh, degrees. This is from what happens when your kids are grown. And what happens when your kids who are grown um, maybe even choose a path you wouldn't have chosen for them? How do we respond to that? What is the biblical way that we walk through that? Um, what does it look like to be parents, uh, whole life parents? And so that's going to be a really interesting thing. And I think we'll attack multiple generational segments of our congregation. And then on the 26th, uh, the last Sunday of the month, I'll come back and we will talk about uh, sex. If you have children and you do not want them to hear about that, that would be a good Sunday to circle and make sure they're in care. Uh, we are not going to do anything that is uh, shame-inducing or uh, no one should be blushing. But we do believe in discussing difficult things and, and hard things. And so what we know to be true is the world is not shy about discussing that. And so we are not going to be shy about addressing it from a biblical standpoint. And so we're going to talk about what is it intended for, how did God create it, and what do we do when uh, the way that the world has corrupted it um, begins to corrupt our relationships. And so that is going to be kind of a high level um, look at what that is. And so be warned, that's on the 26th. I think you're going to be okay. With all of this, okay, our aim is to be intensely practical, okay? You're not going to get a theoretical model of an ideal marriage. And we're going to say now that there is no such thing as the perfect marriage, okay? And no such thing. If you are single, this is for you. If you are single again, this is for you. If you are engaged, if you are married, if you are married again, every single person, this applies. Because if, let's say you were single and maybe hoping to be married, this is called free training on what to look for. Let's say you've been hurt and you were in a place where you go, hey, marriage wasn't really the best experience for me. Maybe this is a moment of introspection where we look back and we gain clarity not only about ourselves but about God. 
for every single one of us, it's applicable um, because Jesus used metaphors all throughout his ministry, but one of the clearest was that the church was his bride. That is individual and collective. Jesus called the church his bride, which means that everything Jesus says on marriage applies to every single follower of Jesus. And I recognize, so we'll start with this uh, qualifier. I recognize marriage is a lot like money. People often say, don't talk about my blank in church. Don't talk about my money. Don't talk about my marriage. We are oddly protective of marriages. We are oddly protective of our relationships and our uh, kind of behind-the-scenes lives, primarily because we're really insecure about them. The reason I don't visit a financial planner is pride, right? I, I don't want the him, him or her to tell me how wrong I've been in managing my money. So I just avoid it. Uh, I don't open my marriage up to scrutiny because my pride tells me it's painful for others to show me how much work I have left on the journey. And so what we're going to say is this month, we're going to say what we always say. It's okay not to be okay. Just don't stay there. And what we're aiming for is progress, not perfection. And so no one in here lives the perfect marriage. Every single one of us has something we can dial in. Every single one of us in our uh, role as the bride of Christ has something we can see and go, whoa, I didn't, I didn't know that was there. And so what we're doing is committing to open our minds and humbling our hearts and saying, God, what is it that you want to teach me through the way that you speak about that relationship? At its base, what we're going to say is marriage is not a construct of men. So we're going to start with kind of an agreed upon base. Marriage is not an evolutionary gimmick that uh, we evolved into in order to make sure our DNA passed along. It's not an enlightenment idea that was some uh, sort of enlightenment way to strengthen the family unit or society. Marriage was instituted by God and it is regulated by God. And I will start uh, in general by saying what Tim Keller says. That marriage does not exist to make you happy, but to make you holy. He says, marriage does not exist to make you happy, but to make you holy. And I've run into no shortage of Christians that have disagreed with that statement. And yet the whole of scripture points to this idea that marriage as an institution exists to make us holy, to sanctify us, create lives that are more like Christ. And if that's true, then we have to look at marriage in a whole new way. And so what we're going to be doing today is kind of a hard reset. So no matter where you are in the journey, my hope is that you might unlock something new with us together. Matthew uh, chapter 19, verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus had finished these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him, and he tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore, or some of your Bibles will say, For this reason... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they're one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Real quickly, what's happening is, is people, we're, gonna, we're not going to get stuck on the divorce piece. This has a lot to tell us, and we could spend six weeks on here. What will you need to see when you read uh, this idea? Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart. But it wasn't the beginning. It wasn't the design from the beginning. From the beginning, it was not so. Jesus is saying the design and, and the desire 
of God in marriage was never for divorce. The design was for wholeness. And yet, at the fall, brokenness and sin entered into the equation. And so the natural outcome of that is there will be uh, aspects of what God designed to be whole that we, in our sin, find ourselves broken. And so we go, so, so that's where we are. It's simply reality. And they, they keep pressing him. They say, if, if that's the case, then it's better not to marry. Jesus, you're making this sound pretty tough. He said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive, receive this. Okay, that's a lot all at once. What we're asking as we start in this fundamental journey is what is the fundamental essence of marriage? It's an odd place to start if we want to talk about marriage to bring up the, the one place where Jesus addresses divorce, right? Well, that seems like a curious idea. What is the essence of marriage? What ultimately defines what a marriage is? Like what defines a doctor? What's the es- essence of a physician? I don't think anybody in here would say, well, that's, that's if you wear the white coat, you're a physician, no, no, there, there's this whole essence of what it means to become a doctor. And so we ask the same thing about marriage. And, and if you ask any poll, any group of, of Americans, what does it mean to be married? What's the essence of marriage? You'll get all these strange answers. Some people will say love. Well, love is the essence of marriage. You know the, the, the thing in animals that, that creates emotion, if you include us, it's called a limbic system, physiologically. A limbic system is, is the thing that allows uh, emotion within uh, mammals. Dogs have a limbic system, which is why people like dogs and cats are evil, right? <laughs> Half the room is like, don't like him anymore. <laughs> dogs express this sort of love. They have this really kind of uh, limited limbic system. So, but dogs love. So, so the essence of, of, lo- of marriage can't be love because that doesn't, that doesn't fit. What about it's family? The essence of, of marriage, it's about family and it's about children. There were two rabbits that were living in our backyard. We now have 30. That's not the essence of marriage. It's, it, it's not what it's about. Verse 5 says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and he would hold fast to his wife. Some of, your, some of your texts say cleave. A man will leave and cleave. You've heard that phrase, leave his family, he'll cleave to his, his wife. That word literally means to make a covenant. A public vow of absolute faithfulness and commitment. The essence of marriage is covenant. In Ezekiel 16, God says to Israel, I married you. I married you. When you were of age, I covered you with my robe, I made my vows to you, and I pledged my faithfulness to you. God says to Israel, I married you. And then he explains what that means. What's the essence of marriage, God? I covered you, I made vows to you, and I pledged my faithfulness to you. That's the essence. It's this pledge of faithfulness. It's this I'm never going away type of commitment. This is an issue as an officiant uh, for people's weddings. Someone will say, will you do our wedding? Will you be the, you know, like the accessory that stands between us as everybody looks at us? Will you be that for us? And I say, yeah, sure, we'll do that. Inevitably, someone will say, well, can we write our own vows? To which I say, look, it's your show. I'm just here. Um, You do whatever you want. Tell me what you want me to do. I am the accessory. And yet, almost every time when you find couples write their own vows, 
you get this unfortunate sense that we haven't quite taught very well in the church what marriage is about. Because sickness and health and richer and poorer and all of that, when we write our own vows, becomes, you know, butterflies and, and Snapchat or I don't know, people like, oh, you love me and you're, you, you make me feel this way and I just, I can't ever imagine being without your embrace and you're like, those, those are vows? Those are momentary feelings. What a covenant is, is a way to stand up in front of someone else and say, regardless of circumstances, we're in this together. So richer and poorer, sickness and health, better or worse, I'm here. The problem is we start with the wrong idea in our culture, and so often starting with the wrong idea leads us to look for the wrong partner. Verse 5, he says, therefore, I said it also says, for this reason. Jesus quotes backwards, and, and what he's talking about is, is it creation? At creation, there was this, this kind of beautiful tumbling out of the glory of God, and he makes the moon and the stars, and he said it is good, and he, the animals and the plants, and it is good, and the, the depths, and it is good, and it is good, and it is good, and that's called a benediction. Bene, good, diction, speech. It is good. He says it's good, it's good. In Scripture, when you read from Genesis 1 and you start turning the pages, the first time you find something that isn't good, a malediction, the first time you find that is when God looks at Adam and he says, and he was alone, and, and God said it was not good that he should be alone. Everything was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, and then Adam, he's alone, that's not good. And so God creates a mate. Marriage begins with mate selection. And friendship has to be the basis. So if we look at biblical marriage, biblical uh, relationship at covenant level, it has to be friendship-based. Why? Because looks. If you base your life on looks, you base your marriage on looks, what happens to looks? Uh, They can, they don't always, they can go downhill. I have less hair than I did when we got married, true? Right. There is more gray in my beard. These are things that are happening to me. My looks might not always be there. If our marriage was based on looks, my wife would go, you were more handsome 10 years ago. I'm out. Marriage based on sex. When the passion kind of fades, when frequency slows, when I'm out. Marriage based on money. Tough times come, I'm out. A marriage based on emotional love. That never fades, right? And when that fades, you know what? If that's what this was based on, I'm out. It has to be based on a covenant friendship. Otherwise, it's based in dysfunction. Because the reality of our culture is that people line up uh, mates, potential mates, based on looks. The first thing we do is we, the first filter we have is, is looks. And if they pass through the looks filter, then we're willing to get to know them. Right? There's a whole industry around this. If you don't know what Tinder is, don't ask or look. Okay? But it's basically saying, if you're good enough looking, then I might want to get to know you further. And this would be saying that's the total opposite way that we should be approaching marriage. There should be some sort of app that says, can I be best friends with you for the rest of my life? And if so, then maybe I get to see what you look like. Because looks will fade or change, life will crash in, physical chemistry gets undone. All of those things happen, and yet Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend. Not for his lover. His friend. 
So a wedding, the start of marriage, where we are in a marriage series, a wedding is not to declare present love, but promised future. Because love is not an emotion. And you hear this, right? I think we've all heard. Love is not an emotion, it's a choice. There was a breakthrough in my marriage, one of the happiest moments in my marriage. Did not come out of a great mountaintop joy or a shared triumph. I don't actually remember what the argument was, but it was a good one. And we got to the end of it, and Steph looks at me and she says, you know what, I don't like you right now. I don't like you at all. <sighs> but I love you. And I thought, we've done it. Step one. I don't like you at all. I might not like you for days or weeks because I don't like what just happened. But I love you. And that's the essence of covenant commitment is to say, I don't have to like you in this moment to know that I've pledged to love you with my life because love is not an emotion, it's a choice. That's the fundamental essence. It's a deep covenant. It's a a pledge that I will cover you. I will be faithful. From this fundamental essence, then we find our fundamental priority of marriage. For a marriage to be successful, it has to have the top relational priority after your personal relationship with God. And this seems really obvious, and everybody would uh, affirm this, and uh uh-huh. And yet, the reality of our lives is not always so clean with this, is it? Like, for for a lot of us, we'd say, you know what, my marriage is up there. But if you did, you know, like an audit, my job is actually probably number one. And say, no, that's that's not the design of Scripture. Well, my marriage is cool, you know, and I, I really, I love my spouse, but we've been best friends since we were little, so we're just, we stay tight. So, I mean, that might be my number one relationship, but my marriage is totally like 1A. Nope. Marriage is the most powerful and the most important relationship you have. In the garden, God didn't set up a parent and child, Adam and his son or daughter. He didn't set up uh, two people of the same gender, two men, two women. God didn't give a man a job and say, this will fulfill you. He didn't give Adam a really great supportive Facebook group that he could get his emotional gratification. God set up a man and a wife. The archetypal relationship of the basis of Scripture is a man and his wife. Because marriage, more than any other relationship, shapes your whole life. From the foundational place, it shapes you. People who've been married for a while will uh, agree with this, I hope. When your whole life is awesome, but your marriage is weak, you live from a base of weakness. It undermines everything. If your whole life is awesome, but your marriage is weak, the whole thing feels shaky. And the inverse is true. When your whole life is crumbling, crumbling, but your marriage is strong, you live from a place of strength foundationally. And even though the whole thing feels like it's going to fall, you feel secure and safe and sturdy. It's galvanizing because it's foundationally important. Postmodern thought disagrees with the Bible here. Let's say we are what we make of ourselves and we can't be defined by something outside of ourselves. And yet Adam says, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is deeper than physically intimate, the one flesh that we read about in the New Testament. This is deeper than that. She is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Adam is saying we are indistinguishably unified. As if to respond to Eve, Adam would say, do I love you? I am you. 
And that's mind-blowing for me. We are not two separate beings. The scripture literally says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I love you? No, I am you. Your health and your well-being is mine. They're indistinguishably unified. They're inextricably tied together. And so to the degree that we uh, resist that scriptural reality is the degree with which we will always struggle in marriage. It has to be the prioritized relationship. And some people say, yeah, 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 this is great. It's that singleness up there. What about me? Because the disciples said, wait a minute, is it better not to marry? This is heavy, Jesus. And so in verse 12, he has that whole thing about the eunuch. And I kind of read it, and most, most people in the room were like, I, we don't know what's happening here, but I'll just wait for him to finish. So, some eunuchs would be kind of uh, born into eunuchism, you could say. It's not a word. They're constitutionally pre-designed not to marry. They're going to be single. And yet he says, but there's some who, who by choice of man get into that, by somebody else brings them into this line, and so then they become a eunuch. And there's some that, that you know, for the kingdom, they, they choose it. And what he's doing, he's making this parallel to singleness, and he's saying some people, you know what, some people are just born with the ability and the calling to being single. What does it mean to be single? What does it mean to have the calling to be single? You don't burn with uh, physical desire. That's something that you've been freed from. You don't have that burning in you. Maybe you you don't feel uh, lonely in that moment of singleness. You feel whole and fulfilled and you have... uh, There's certain things, it's not science, but there's certain things that when someone is really called to to singleness that exist there. And so what Jesus is saying is, is for those who receive that calling, then receive it. Whether you were born feeling like, you know what, I don't need a mate for this. God has this thing for me and I got to go and the only way I can get there is to be single. He's saying embrace that. If that's you, that's great. If you've been brought into that by man, maybe you thought you were going to do this thing and then life kind of crumbled and now you're single and he's going, that's your new calling, embrace that. If you can receive it, receive it. Being married shouldn't define you, whether or not you're married. But once you are married, it does reorient our world and our priorities. Why? Marriage was created for a purpose and with a set design. So we can run from what Scripture says about what marriage is supposed to be, but it was created with a purpose and a set design. I learned how to use a snow shovel once this year. Appreciate that. You guys all said winter was going to be tough. It's not. Super easy. It's never going to snow again. Next year won't be bad at all. Trust me. Can all come and laugh at me next November when we're buried. But you can use, uh, yeah, April, thanks. That's good. I probably deserve that. We don't forget we were here interviewing in May and it was snowing. So um, it'll snow on the 4th of July this year and you can all just drive by and laugh at us. Um, I learned how to use a snow shovel. It has a purpose and a design, right? Some of you have the fancy one that even has that weird like hook in it so it doesn't hurt your back. I don't have that one. You can use a snow shovel for eating cereal. But that doesn't mean it's the most effective use for that tool. Right? It wasn't designed to eat cereal. And some of us could choose to eat cereal with a snow shovel. But that doesn't mean it's the most effective use or the best design. It was designed for a purpose and it functions best within that lane. When we take it out of the lane with which it was designed, it doesn't function the way it's supposed to. You can still do it. There's no prohibition on cereal with a snow shovel. 
just why would you do it if it was so clearly designed for something else? That's what happens when we live in marriage outside of God's design for marriage. The reality is even believers enter into something that isn't biblical marriage. Even believers, and I would say often believers, we live with cultural marriage that has biblical flavor. We live a cultural marriage that has biblical flavors. We like this one and that one and this principle and that scripture on the wall would be nice. And we kind of mix it up and we go, this is my marriage, but I'm going to let it be Bible flavored. You guys ever had a Frappuccino? Who's had a Frappuccino? They're delicious. That is not coffee, y'all. Someone say, can I meet you for coffee? We show up to Starbucks, and I, I'm there two minutes after they're there, and they're sitting there, and they're drinking like this milkshake that has whipped cream and, and chocolate chips on the top, and they're like, hey, thanks for meeting me for coffee. And I'm like, you don't have coffee. That, I don't know what that is. It's delicious. Thank you. That's ice cream flavored by coffee, right? That's ice cream with a flavor additive. But it's not coffee. Most Christian marriages, if we're honest are sort of secular cultural arrangements with some biblical flavoring added in. It's just not the same. The reality for us is every day we get to choose, right? This is not a binary, uh-oh, I'm entered into the wrong type of marriage and I'm, I'm stuck. It's not zero or one. Every day we choose, am I going to live principally on the basis that we are indistinguishably one, that we are unified, that I am to lay my life down for my partner? Or am I going to choose to live another way? We end up adding just the sweetness we like. I want a little of the mint syrup and give me some of the extra whipped cream and double this thing here. And, and so we read through the Bible and we go, the Song of Solomon, that's cool. I'll take that. The thing about the deer and that, that meadow, I don't know what that is, but it sounds, I like that. Give me some more of the Song of Solomon. It would, would die to each other. No, no, not for us. The reality is simply being of the same faith doesn't fix our issues. So many of us think if I just marry another believer, then, then we'll be okay. But being of the same faith isn't the issue fixer. Because intellectual honesty demands that we make pretty clear that there are people who don't believe that have great marriages sometimes. And there are people who believe fiercely who just can't make it. And that's the product of definitions. What is success? If I asked you to think about what does success in your marriage look like, what does it mean to have a successful marriage, we'd get a hundred different answers. Some would say it's not fighting. Some would say it's raising godly kids. Some would say it's making it to retirement and still being married. How many of you would say it's holiness? reality is marriage is two broken people coming together to form a broken unit, which is why I made sure to say there are no perfect marriages. So nobody leaves today with shame going, man, I'm really way off course. We leave today going, man, I'm really glad I'm not the only one. Or if I'm not in marriage yet, if I'm not at that stage yet, I go, oh, I'm glad I heard that thing because I got to avoid that boulder. When I'm doing a wedding for people, I'll often uh, have a illustration I like to give that depresses everybody, and so that makes me happy. And I look at this glowing bride and her husband, and they're not listening to me either anyway, so it doesn't matter. So this is more for the other people. And I say, imagine you're a bridge as you enter into marriage. You're each a bridge. One of those 
you know, eastern Ohio, those, those covered, wooden, beautiful bridges over some babbling brook in a beautiful landscape, those beautiful bridges, wooden and, and antiqued and like a little creek as you go over them, but gosh, aren't they romantic? Imagine you're that kind of bridge, aging in places, imperfect in others, but man, you sure are great. And then you add marriage. And marriage is an 18-wheeler going 70 miles an hour right over that bridge. And the thing creaks and crumbles and pieces fall off. Add some kids to the mix. Add a couple trailers to that 18-wheeler and just keep driving it over. And they look at me horrified. What are you doing? This is our wedding. To which I say, marriage doesn't create flaws in us. It exposes them. Marriage doesn't create flaws in us. It exposes them. My marriage didn't make me more impatient or selfish. It exposed that at times I'm incredibly impatient and selfish. Kids don't create flaws in us. They expose them. They're a stress weight added on top of a bridge that wasn't quite ready to take that weight. And so uh, kids don't give me an anger problem. I had an anger problem that kids exposed. Right, that becomes our thing, is we want to uh, assign guilt to the institution instead of looking inwardly and going, what is this institution exposing about who I really am? And yet the beauty is, if I have any hope of success, I have to humble myself enough just to see that I'm in need of repair. If you hold marriage as a top relational priority, you can get there. It takes a life worth of work, and yet this is if we believe that marriage is about holiness, then the life's work of, worth of work is exactly what we're here for. It's to grow and be sanctified and be a little bit more like Jesus every day, a little bit more graceful, a little bit more merciful, a little bit more giving, a little bit more generous, one day at a time to learn, oh, that's a flaw. We've got to fix that up. And oh, this is not right. I've got to submit that to Christ. And, and there's nothing fun about getting exposed in our imperfection. But there's something incredible about growing out of them and becoming a bit more like Jesus along the way. If you're single in here, you might go, this is terrifying and I'm never coming back. That's okay. If you're married, you might say this is a little bit depressing and I wish I hadn't come today. And yet, what I know to be true, what I know to be true, is that we should have a clear hope because we have a clear example. We have the fundamental essence of what marriage is and this fundamental priority that we have to apply to it. But then finally, there's this last, there's this fundamental example that we get to look at and be reflected by. You say, so I get that it's about a covenant, some high-minded promise. I get that. And I get that it should be my top priority after my relationship with Christ. I get that. Then what? And the answer is Jesus. It's the church answer. It's the Sunday school answer. What, What is this example? It's Jesus. Jesus who said, I'm going to lay my life down for my bride. I'm going to sacrificially and selflessly give of everything I have, even though... I don't deserve what's coming to me. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it for you so that you might have life. I will endure death. So that you might live, I will die. So that you might breathe free, I will be in chains. Jesus says, I will lay my life down for you. And if we apply that to marriage, if we're honest, what we would probably be saying is, yeah, that's great. I can't do that. I'm not him. So it's not a very fun example because I'm never going to measure up to that. To which I would put forth the counter-argument that I don't know that we have any world-class chefs in the room. But we have a whole lot of people that are going to cook dinner tonight. 
that having an incredible example isn't the same thing as having to meet up to that standard. Having the example is the inspiration to say, I can do this again today. And 10 years ago, I wasn't the world's greatest cook. And today I'm not the world's greatest cook, but I'm better than I was 10 years ago. Because I'm practicing this craft. I'm practicing this art. And as we live for Jesus, as we live like Jesus a little bit more every day, it isn't that we're ever going to get there. It's about progress, not perfection. But if I live it every single day, 10 years from now, I will look more like Jesus than I did 10 years ago. And if I'm bound with someone else who holds these same essentials that I hold, and we live by these priorities, we live by this law, then together we'll grow in this holiness dance. Lay down your life for another. Jesus lays out this recipe for life and love and joy and hope, and he says, you are not there. But don't stop trying. Watch the way that holiness create, uh, increases when you lay your life down for another every day. Watch the way that holiness increases when you choose to serve your spouse selflessly. To be together with eyes open is to know Jesus more. To walk through the darkest times of a relationship is to know Jesus more if we only open our eyes to that reality. To understand it all better, to lean in closer, and to walk more as Jesus walked. Marriage does not exist to make you happy, but to make you holy. And so I pray that the path to holiness is filled with moments of incredible happiness. That there are moments of profound joy, and in the sorrow we find uh, deep meaning on the other side. That we, as a people who would commit to doing something well, would find incredible fullness doing it the way that God intended it to be done. The work of marriage is tough work, but it's good work if you can get it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you uh, created us. You created man, you created woman. Father, you placed us together, and we acknowledge that today. That your design and your desire for our lives was long ago instituted, and Father, you set the laws around it. So Lord, I would say first, forgive me, forgive us where we have decided to jump out away from the path that you've set for us and we attempt to do relationship our own way, we do marriage our own way. Father, draw us back to the center of your creation, to the center of your design, and remind us that we are created for covenant. And then, Father, show us in a new way Jesus today. Let us see the work of your Son. Let us see Jesus on the cross as a picture of, of a husband laying his life down for his wife, of a wife laying her life down for her husband. Father, I pray that your example through Jesus would be fresh inspiration for us, would remind us that even in those in the room who would say, I'm not in the best stage of my marriage, we would look at the cross and we would look at the sorrow and we would look at the shame and we would look at the darkness. Father, we wouldn't forget that it was only three days. The stone was rolled away, that the light came through, 
that life broke back through the darkness. Father, I pray that as individuals, we would rest on that resurrection. Father, you would whisper to us that it's okay not to be okay. And that you would encourage us in that whisper not to stay there. That you would encourage us on, you would fan the flame, that you would challenge us to more and better. So Father, right now we lift up those in the room that are married. Pray that you would touch hearts, that you would reignite lives. God, that you would create questions and awkwardness, that you would stir conversation, whatever it takes to draw us back to you. Father, for those in the room who are not married, Father, we pray that as you direct their lives, God, that you would set deeply within them your beauty and your hope and your peace, God, in your design, that they would enter into marriage one day, not expecting what culture offers, but expecting something even greater, which is the beauty that you promised. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for drawing us, for calling us, for saving us, and then for walking with us as we stumble along this journey. God, we thank you for your grace, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.